Welcome in to another new AMP podcast. My name is Ben DuBose, and I'm the news editor for the AMP publications team. Starting in late February, AMP established an infrastructure insurance task force, and it's becoming a clear point of emphasis within our association. So what we're trying to do in today's podcast is explain the background of the task force and its purpose, and then explain how AMP members and people throughout the industry can work together to develop best practices when it comes to their insurance needs. I'll start by reading off the purpose statement of this task force, and then I'm going to introduce our panelists from that task force and the industry for a roundtable discussion. Here's the purpose statement. Though the direct global cost is attributed to corrosion prevention system failures amount to nearly 3.5% of global GDP, those failures are not universally recognized as a major cause or contributor to asset failures around the globe. AMP, as a global leader in the coatings and corrosion industry, strive to, to support those that work on improving the safety, reliability, and long-term sustainability of our assets. This task force will bring together industry stakeholders from owners, both public and private, insurance companies, contractors, consultants, and manufacturers, all in an effort to better understand the relationship that corrosion engineering systems have within the infrastructure insurance industry. Discussions are expected to address the challenges and best practices that will benefit those involved in designing, specifying, supplying, and performing those services, specifically as they relate to insurance, and to discuss various ways that AMP can address them. The result of this discussion is expected to inform and guide AMP's development of products, programs, and services to support the industry in achieving the ultimate outcome of protecting those assets long term. So with that as the backdrop, let's introduce our panel. As you can see, if you're watching the video feed, we've got Tony Sardinas of GPI. We've got Nick Kuntz of Alliant Services, and we have David Scotty of Scotty Law Group. Tony and Nick are leading figures on the task force, but rather than me introduce them and give you backgrounds on their career journeys and what it is they're doing with the task force, I'm going to let each of our panelists introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about his specific career journey. Tony, we can start with you. Sure. Again, my name is Tony Sardinas. I am with GPI. I'm the Corrosion Protection Pursuits Leader for the company, uh, traveling around the country giving presentations on bridge preservation through coatings. I have 35 years in the industry, uh, majority of that uh, with uh, DOTs and the bridge industry. And I am the uh, co-chair of this uh, task force committee. Awesome. Well, hey, um, pleasure to meet you. Uh, this is Nick Kuntz uh, with Alliant Insurance Services. So I'm also a, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to be a co-chair with Tony um, on this committee. Uh, you know, my perspective is kind of interesting. I started my career actually in the field um, while going through college. Um, then was on the construction side, uh, doing a lot of big infrastructure projects on the EHS and safety side, and then I eventually moved on to the um, moved on to the insurance brokerage side. So uh, I don't work for the insurance company. I actually uh, I'm a broker working on behalf of the owners and the construction firms. So I become intimately involved in in contracts and language and contract scopes and, and figuring out how contractors and owners can achieve their uh, achieve their outcomes with as, as little risk as possible. So I, I kind of have a unique place in the world. So, yeah. We'll wrap Hi. up the introductions with David. Uh, for clarity, David's not on the task force, but 
David, you still have a role to play in today's discussion. Just tell our listeners your legal background. Sure. Uh, David Scotty, I'm the owner of Scotty Law Group boutique firm that focuses in construction law. I've worked in construction law since the mid 80s. I have done um, probably three quarters of a billion dollars in construction agreements. I've litigated uh, at all levels. I focus in commercial, industrial uh, infrastructure projects so that I do both the contracts and the litigation, and it helps to uh, give better focus to the contracts. And my goal is to try and add a little perspective to the discussion today from the legal standpoint. So let's start with a very basic question, and this will be for Tony and or Nick. What exactly is the Infrastructure Insurance Task Force Committee and why was it formed? Thanks, Ben. Well, uh, um, as you mentioned earlier in the purpose statement, that pretty much uh, discusses what this committee is all about. But basically it is about bringing um, a group of industry professionals, which will include those owners, both public and private consultants, uh, insurance um, professionals, contractors and manufacturers and 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 one of its main purpose is to better understand and better verbalize in those contract documents um you know the insurance and those requirements are needed from the owner's perspective and from the contractor's perspective as well and and just to clarify a little bit more um i started in the construction industry in the 80s as a contractor as an inspector in the early 90s and getting to this point. So I bring a little bit of uh, experience from all aspects of the industry and also being a facilitator again of this uh, committee. Yeah, and and Ben, I really, you know, in, in just working with Tony and the other folks at AMP and speaking with Dave and a lot of our, our clients, you know, there's a need for this committee and that the stakeholders all and that are all involved you know, there's there truly is not a in, until this committee was formed, there really was not a forum from which they could work together uh, to try to to make all their lives easier. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's really, really what we're working towards is is this is one of the uh, it's a unique opportunity in that all the stakeholders can benefit and they they all can voice their concerns and they all can collectively find ways to make it, uh, you know, make it easier to achieve their outcomes. So I want to start our discussion as it pertains to not just the task force, but the industry at large and the practical elements of what you're trying to do with a look at the contract language. That's come up a couple of times. I know that's an important part of this. David, we can start with you on this from a legal perspective. As it pertains to insurance requirements, what should people be looking for when it comes to the contract language, what are some of the key themes that are going to be out there on a given project job, whatever it may be, that I guess they should be mindful of as they evaluate these? We, you're trying to protect against risk. And so you need to evaluate the scope of work that you're undertaking on the project. You need to look at uh, environmental concerns, um, surrounding properties that you may be affecting with your work the kind of materials you're going to be using, the risk that's going to be involved in the work itself. And then you look to the insurance to see whether or not, in your mind at least, it properly addresses the risk it's supposed to protect you against. Also, there's going to be additional insured provisions. So you want to see the scope of who you're insuring and whether or not you agree that that's fair. 
my other recommendation, even though I've been doing this for over 40 years, I turn to my insurance agent, my risk manager, and ask them to review the insurance provisions because at the end of the day, these are changing frequently and they're they're nuanced and you want to have someone that is an expert in this really looking at the provisions to make sure they say what you want them to say and in the coverages that you're getting. Uh, there may be exclusions that should be added or should be taken away. And these are things that um, uh, most people are not uh, facile enough to understand. So you're better off going to the expert for advice. And Ben, if I can help add on to that, I mean, you, you really have a number of stakeholders as involved. If you're on the construction side, you know, you have uh, you have to be able to evaluate your scope of work. Um, there's the legal part. Does it make sense? Is the contract fair? Is the contract flow correctly? Is it applicable to the work? Right. And that's where, you know, a, a, a Dave would come in. Right. And then you have uh, the risk you're trying to transfer. Does it line up? Does the contract language line up with the actual insurance policy? Ideally, you buy insurance to transfer risk, right? You transfer that risk off your balance sheet onto an insurance company's balance sheet, right? That's the whole reason why you do it. But if the contract that's being delivered to you by that project owner uh, does not line up with your insurance policies, uh, you have a gap. Right. And when there's gaps, everybody loses because the uh, that that project owner, they just want to be able to get their project done. Right. They want something to respond to make them whole again so the project can get finished. Right. And the contractor, they just want to do their work and get out of there. Right. So what we find oftentimes is uh, owners are pretty good at figuring out what they need done and what they want done. Contractors are really good about doing it. It's the, uh, you know, the devil's in the details as far as the paperwork and how all that fits together. Um, and we're also living in a really unique world in that construction delivery methods are changing. So those those delivery methods are evolving a little bit quicker than the contracts are, than the case law that can be developed behind them. So we have this great thing where, hey, we're going to be able to deliver these, deliver the outcome on the project a little bit quicker uh, by streamlining things with advanced construction delivery methods. But on the same note, we're not accounting for that in the contracts. And so that that leads an opportunity that leaves an opportunity for something to go wrong. Tony, from an industry perspective, what's your insight on contract language and the role that plays in things? Well, basically, like Nick just stated, we want to make sure that the language is clear and 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 understandable uh not just from what the owner puts into that contract but that the contractor actually understands their roles the specific requirements and 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 what needs to be done and uh, and bidding it accordingly to that to, to that language mm -hmm. yeah and and that needs to be part of the, you know, the, the bidding process, right? You, you need to understand that language in the bidding process. Um, insurance companies are typically very good about adopting language if you ask when you're bidding the job and say, hey, we need to, we need to alter this language slightly. If you wait till after a claim comes, they're not going to change and, and accept that claim. They're going to find any reason not to accept that claim. So, um, and so any contractor right now that doesn't have a process in place to review their contracts, 
um, is really playing with fire. Uh, it's it's really a frightening place to be. And and you could, it, based on the scope of work and the owners you're working for and the type of coatings work you're performing, you know, your, your process is going to be a little bit different. Um, but you need to have a process in place and it needs to really have all the right stakeholders involved. I think you want to, um, following up on what Nick said, review the contract. And I know it's terrible reading, um, but if you have a claim, the reading is going to become something that you're going to be very focused on. So you may as well focus on it at the start. So hopefully you leave it in the drawer and don't have to go back to it. But you want to look at who you're indemnifying, what kind of warranty you're giving, the length of it, the scope of it. Uh, you want to look out for waivers. Um, one trap that people fall into is when they file their, uh, for their pay application, there'll be a lien waiver attached. And owners have gotten to a point where they add to that uh, waiver language where you can waive all your claims up until that date. And if you're not careful, you could end up at the end of the job where you have a lot of loss, a lot of extra labor that you want to charge for, and you've given it up just by trying to get your money as you go. So you need to pay attention to what's in there. Um, also, if there's a change in conditions, if the if the steel is not in the condition you thought it would be that you have to uh, coat, if the, uh, the surrounding environment now all of a sudden is much more complicated, you have to make sure that you look at that and address it. Because as Nick says, the honeymoon period is before you start. That's when everybody is wanting to get together and make things work. And that's the best time to address these issues. David, as a quick follow up to that, when members are looking at reviewing a contract in the early stages, what are the resources potentially available to them if they're unsure about certain things in-house? When they're looking at that review process, they're analyzing the risk, they're trying to evaluate, if they want to you know, bring in, I guess, outside counsel or just an outside perspective, what's the best way they should start that process? There's lawyers who focus on construction law. Okay. And um, so it's something where they will know the answers to a lot of this pretty much off the top of their head. They can have a, a, a reasonable discussion with the client about the risks, about what they should look for in their contract or if they need something explained in the contract. And I think uh, most contractors have a lawyer that they use. Unfortunately, they may use them for real estate and now they're trying to use them for insurance. And so you want to... Um, get somebody that actually focuses in that area who can be used as a guide. Yeah, the, the best the best contractors that I work with, they have uh, different attorneys that they use for different things. They really need to have a construction law attorney looking at their contracts. You, you can't use a generalist attorney to to do that. And, and, and that's the same with insurance, right? They need to have a insurance specific person that understands the geography that they're going to work in, understands the, uh, you know, uh, how the world fits together in that location to, you know, to, to interpret those contracts. If you're a contractor from the Northeast and you're going to work in California, the case law there that backs up those contracts is very different. The exclusions and the way they're interpreted on your insurance policies are very different, right? So you need to have somebody that understands, um, you know, the uh, the area that you're working in, understands how the policies will respond. Um, so it's it's an area that I see a lot of contractors making mistakes is they don't have an, an attorney or insurance professional that truly understands 
what they do and um, you know where they're working. Yeah, and I think that uh, just like with a lawyer being a specialist, uh, going to an agent as opposed to a risk advisor, um, someone who actually understands at a deeper level what the insurance agreements are covering and not covering and how it fits together. Uh, I think there's a difference as companies grow, they grow out of certain types of insurance uh, advice and, and they have a need for risk advice and, and that affects who you should go to. I'm sure some people listening or watching will hear about the intricacy of that process and think that's a lot of resources to allocate both in terms of manpower, potentially financial, but at the end of the day, it's worth it in many occasions because we're talking about a major financial impact when it comes to this subject. So from an industry perspective, explain just how important insurance is to the bottom line of both the owner and a contractor, and thus why it's important to potentially allocate resources in such a manner. Yeah, I can I can speak to that a little bit. Um, based on where you're working uh, in this industry, um, you know, if you're in the uh, in the Northeast or certain parts of the West, you might be paying upwards of, you know, 25% of your of your revenue uh, annually might go towards insurance, which is kind of a, a crazy number. Um, you know, and you work in certain parts of the South and um, certain parts of the Southeast Southwest, it's it's going to be a little bit different, it's be a little bit less than that, but it's a significant number, right? Um, to the bottom line of any any contractor. So if, if you're making that investment, you need to make sure that you're getting out of it uh, what you're buying, uh, what, what you're intending to buy, right? Um, and you need to really make sure that that the language in those policies protects you. Uh, if you don't, you're, you're you're just wasting money, right? And ultimately, you know, you buy insurance for a few different reasons. You buy insurance to protect your financial interest if something goes wrong. You buy it to protect the the owners, the project owners that you're working for, so your clients, right? And then the third thing you buy it for is legal defense. I think a lot of people forget about that. When you do get into trouble or you're accused of something or brought into a claim, your insurance company oftentimes will pay for that legal defense. So if the claim is denied, well, then you, you're paying legal out of your pocket, you know, and it's a threat to your balance sheet. So our hope is that with aligning the uh, the contract language with some of the policies that the insurance companies have and and, and streamlining the process, uh, we'll be able to uh, we'll be able to reduce those costs by creating some efficiencies. Um, when things are vague, you know everybody loses, right? Because somebody has to foot the bill for it being vague, and and, and that's ultimately our our you know our construction clients, and they're passing that that cost on to the owners so yeah just want to add to that too and, and talking about when you know that that part that we don't want to see but does happen about how when things go wrong right and go bad you know um our firm has represented many owners on claims i've personally done that a few times and it really does come down to one thing and nikki stated it perfectly understanding the contract language and realizing that this contract that you've been awarded is specific. Those do that document is specific to that contract. You can't talk about or what you've done in the past or things like that. So um, you want to make sure that you understand that. But also, as an owner, you want to have language 
in that insurance section, you know, for the, the contractor or for their insurance company or, or bonding company, right, uh, to ensure that if they have to replace that contractor because that contractor was found, you know, was defaulted or removed from the project, that they have the insurance or, or bonding company must realize that they have to replace it with possibly a qualified or pre-qualified company um, such as a QP1 or QP2 type company and that has the proper training. So that's some of the language too that should be brought in as from an owner's perspective in those contracts. So if the what happens and it goes bad south, as they say, right? You know, the insurance or bonding company understands what they have to do and what kind of company they have to bring in in order to complete the project. Yeah, the, the goal of a contract is to control risk and to assign responsibility. Uh, hopefully they assign it to a party who's in the best position to handle the risk. And then for that party, they need to then protect themselves through insurance, or through the, how they contract with their subcontractors and suppliers. So you should be able to encompass the risk and, and, and deal with it. As Nick says, if you hit areas where it's gray, where you haven't planned for uh, the events, the, the risk that's occurring, you have instances where all of a sudden you're responsible for things that you didn't know you were going to be responsible for and you haven't provided for them. So you want to spell out your responsibility and then you want to handle it as best you can through insurance and through contract language. Yeah. And, you know, then I give you a, there's probably a, a litany of examples, but, you know, one of them that stands out to me, um, there was Coding's contractor, uh, someone, if you're listening to this, you probably know their name. Um, and um, they were working in, uh, in Louisiana. Uh, this was, about a year and a half ago and that contractor uh they they pulled all the permits that they would normally pull and the uh, construction manager pulled all the permits that they would normally pull the project was going great um everybody was ahead of schedule everything was terrific um until uh, a government agency showed up and said you know everything looks great except we don't see this one permit and um, so it ended up shutting down the job uh, for I think about three and a half months, but there was standby time. There was all these different things that ended up, you know, both the owner and the contractor incurred. And uh, they ended up being removed from the job um, and, and both of them are suing each other now. And, and the, uh, you know, it's a, uh, the contract is obscure and, and who's, who was, who should have pulled that specific permit because neither one of them pulled it. Right. So, um, but that's something that should have been in the contract. So uh, that gray contract where it wasn't black and white is, uh, you know, it led to a, a great job going sideways. I think the key to success on so many subjects is bringing together multiple perspectives. Obviously, today's dis discussion, we have David representing the legal side, Nick speaking from an insurance perspective, Tony talking about things from his areas of industry expertise. And so what we want to do is provide sort of a holistic overview of this process and the factors that our listeners or viewers should perhaps consider. So when we look to the future and we talk about trying to potentially develop best practices for insurance needs. I know that's a big part of the task force that Tony and Nick are playing a leadership role on. 
when it comes to that process, obviously balancing multiple perspectives is the key there as well. What are the best ways that I guess the various entities such as owners, contractors, potentially suppliers, an association like AMP, even the industry at large, how can and should these entities work together to ultimately make sure that we have the the right best practices guide or whatever you want to call it going into such a process? Yeah, that's it's it's tough. Um, I don't think there's a uh, I don't think there's a, a a golden bullet there. Um, you know, but every entity, just as a just as all the contractors should have a contract review process in place, the the owners should have a um, you know a similar contract review process to ensure that they're using. Uh, you know the the right language, the most updated language, requesting the most updated forms, um, and those owners should have a venue from which that in you know in their procurement cycle that contractors can provide feedback. I run into constantly where contractors say I need to buy this extra coverage, uh, and and the question I always ask is is why it it doesn't pertain to your work. Contractor goes back to the own to the project owner and says hey. This doesn't even apply to us. Why do we need to do that? Why do we need to buy a builder's risk policy? Because it doesn't apply to us. Why do we need to be concerned about forest fires? I'm working in a wastewater treatment plant, right? Like all these different things. And the answer that they often get from the procurement people is, well, it's, it's take it or leave it. To, you know, you, you need to procure that insurance. Well, it's, it's a waste of money uh, if the risk doesn't exist. So, you know, owner, project owners, you know, authorities, DOT, they should have a process to reevaluate, you know, what their requirements are. Um, and obviously, you know, when it becomes statutory and it's, you know, quasi-government agencies and things like that, it becomes a little bit more difficult to change that. Um, but there should they should have a process in place as well. So, but our hope with this group is that we can provide a forum for everybody to start to come together and at least make some basic recommendations saying that you know everybody should require the the latest you know general liability policy form you know everybody should require uh, a certain amount of, of excess insurance right based on the contract size things like that and i think uh ben um you, you said a key term uh just a minute ago about the venue and i think the venue and as you said nick the forum right um i think Ian provides that uh, with respects of of bringing all these different uh, individuals, uh, organizations together to have those discussions to try to work it out. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, what are we trying to do here? You know, we're trying to minimize risk. I mean, again, as, as this uh, task force is, you know, minimizing risk, lowering costs, and ultimately still providing safety and getting the job that that owner wants that'll give them that 25 30 years plus protection of their asset so it's kind of bringing all that together and just like anything right it, it really comes down to the language and i think based on uh the, the, the different standards and guides and things that amp has to offer owners and contractors that, that they have been this is just another step in that direction to be able to use those resources and to better define that language the other thing is to look at where the contractor sits in the food chain. Do they have a direct contract with the owner? Or are they a subcontractor? Again, getting back to procedures, 
if you're a sub, then you need to see the contract between the owner and the general contractor, because oftentimes that's incorporated by reference. And uh, I'll have circumstances where someone will have a problem and they haven't even seen that contract. So they don't know exactly what risk they've accepted uh, by having that incorporated into their contract. So you need to understand what is applicable to your work and you need to take a little bit of time to review the contract. And again, uh, don't try and do something you don't do. If there are insurance provisions, you want to get advice and you need to evaluate the risk and hopefully have a successful project. Yeah, and another thing that I think a lot of folks miss today is you have, if you're the, if you're the contractor, you have risk coming in from above you, right? That's being pushed down to you from the folks that you're working for, whether it's a construction manager, general contractor, or direct with the owner, right? So you have risk being pushed down, but you also have risk being pushed up to you. Um, and that's your subcontractors in certain scenarios, that's your vendors, um, you know, your suppliers. Uh, so you have risk being pushed up to you. So how you transfer that risk down and how that risk is being transferred back up to you is a, uh, is really a, you know, a, an interesting issue right now. Uh, an example of that, so one of the largest bridges on the East Coast, uh, there's there's recently been a, a contract that's been released to do work on that. Um, you know, it's it's massive project. And, um, you know, one thing that we're all struggling with is finding qualified MBEs and DBEs, so minority contractors, disadvantaged contractors. Um, so in the process of reviewing uh, the insurance information for a lot of the subcontractors on um, on a lot of these projects, but one in particular, um, we found that those subs don't, they're not carrying, they can produce an insurance certificate that says that they have the right insurance, but then when you actually look into the details, they don't have the correct insurance. So that's an example of where risk would be being pushed up to you because if that contractor has, a, uh, has an incident, uh, they don't have coverage, and so you, it becomes your problem is the is the entity that's subcontracting works with them. And an easy example is um, action over in New York. Uh, so if I get injured in New York, I can sue my employer. Work comp is not the only remedy there. Um, and if uh, if your subcontractors have a, have action over exclusions, it won't show up on an insurance certificate. And if they have an incident, uh, they'll sue their employer and they'll sue you. So um, it's, a, it's a pretty big issue right now. So understanding how that risk comes up to you and gets pushed down is a big thing. So you also need to be able to be pretty savvy as a contractor on how you subcontract work, buy things and interact with other parties. Tony, you mentioned forum a couple of times in your remarks a few minutes ago. We're about a couple months away from AMP 2024, early March in New Orleans, Louisiana. At an association level, what role can AMP play when it comes to supporting the industry on an initiative like this? Well, yeah, as I stated, they can give them uh, the proper verbiage to put in uh, in their contract documents and in, in their requirements, uh, you know, from, you know, qualified contractors, right? The QP1 and QP2 I was talking about, uh, the proper trained uh, inspectors, uh, workers, uh, superintendents, those type of things, they can they can provide that type of documentation and even define it um, for uh, for those owners as well. 
So th there is resources, just like when an owner uses and they state certain things for levels of surface preparation or or coating systems. A lot of times, even those they're referring to the AMP standards and 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 guides and all those type of things, right? It would be no different uh, in the same type of thing, adding specific type of language. So as Nick said earlier, if the floor drops out on a project, you know, at least you know you're going to get um a contractor that is just as well equipped to do the job that um from the contractor that first was awarded the project mm -hmm. they'll have those qualifications and and that's important because you don't want to have somebody come in who has never done a bridge or right. drives in with a truck and a ladder <laughs> so yeah you want to make sure yeah it's 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 kind of unique in that you know what is a what is a uh, a qualified contractor Right. You may be qualified to do the work, but if you don't carry the correct insurance limits and you can't navigate that contractor, you really a qualified contractor at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the definition of qualified contractor is is evolving. Right. Mm -hmm. So the types and the types of contracts you're able to consume really is going to make a, uh, a big difference. Do you have the right insurance? Do you, are you able to safely perform it? Are you able to uh, achieve the objectives in the timelines? And do you have the right insurance, right? Mm. That's all part of being pre-qualified. All right, so as we wind down our discussion, we can end on what I think is sort of the $64,000 question on this issue. What can the industry realistically do to build out a better contract specification that lowers risk and potential claims on a given project? just walk us through i guess the practical steps that could be taken to at the end of the day write a better contract spec well i think to 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 begin to do that you really have to pull apart the elements of the contract uh, and you really have to pull apart the elements of the project to ensure that those things match up right um you know there's some basic things like timing um there's some basic things like risk transfer um you know, indemnity, uh, making sure that the, the scope is appropriate, both on the uh, from the owner's perspective, as well as the contractor's perspective, as well as, you know, the contractor subcontracting. Right. So I think you really have to look at those elements to make sure they're the correct remedy for what the, uh, you know, what the intent of the contract is and what the intent of the insurance is and, and what the the anticipated outcome of the project is. I think you have to work towards a collaborative effort. I think you have to be able to communicate with the owner. If there's something in the spec or something in the contract that you feel is unfair or that causes you a problem in order to be able to do the work and, and to be comfortable with the risk that you're taking on. Um, there's a process of asking questions, a request for information where maybe you can get a little more information to make you comfortable with what is being agreed to. But again, it's it's paying attention at the right time. It's paying attention during the contract formation process, during the bid process, and trying to develop a framework that everybody can, can work together to uh, have a successful project. I, I've reviewed many owner specifications, and a lot of them, not a lot, a fair amount of them, have tried to reinvent the wheel per se 
where they put information in there that's really unnecessary. And I think if if owners put more uh, verbiage in there that addresses or or talks about the use of national standards that have been used throughout this country, but even globally, right? using those standards instead of trying to come up with their own definitions would make things a lot clearer. For listeners or viewers that may want to learn more or potentially get involved, what are the resources available to them? How can they potentially get involved with the task force, the initiatives that you all have going on? What's the best way you would advise someone to help you all in this endeavor? Well, uh, we are going to have a meeting at the National Conference that you talked about uh, on Tuesday. I think it's going to be from 2.30 to 3.30. But, you know, for those that are going to be attending, please check the AMP conference agenda um, and also reach out through AMP. That would be uh, Buddy Reams or, or, or uh, Ed Mans, uh, and they can provide uh those individuals that are interested uh nick's and my information and you know give them information on the committee if they if they're interested in joining and we hope they are to all those that are listening right now but also uh in person at the conference so it'd be great if we get a good audience to really have a nice uh you know conversation about everything we've talked about today yeah i uh, i can be available via linkedin at any point in time just uh reach out uh, nick Kuntz, K-U-N-T-Z, uh, you know, send me a note, drop me a line, shoot me a text, whatever you need to do. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have uh, as much interaction as we can and and as much input and feedback as we can. So we, we really welcome that, uh, you know, more people stepping up and getting involved. And, and we want to hear your stories. I want to hear how something didn't go right for you. Um, I also want to understand what's making things go right for you, what's making things work, right? So I, I think those are all valuable things that the more we share with each other, the the industry becomes better and uh, and our our group becomes better. And David, for you, I believe the website is scottylaw.net, correct? Yes. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground, so we can wrap our discussion there. I again want to thank you three, our distinguished panelists. Again, if they can be a resource to you, our listeners. I'm sure they would be happy to do so. Feel free to reach out to them at LinkedIn, through their websites, or I suppose most practically at the annual conference in early March in New Orleans, as they were just describing. There should be a lot of activity on this front in the coming months. So please stay tuned for more information. Again, this is something that I think is only going to grow in prominence as we move forward in this industry. As far as us at AMP, if you want to get involved with this or anything else going on at an association level, check out our resources, our news, anything pertaining to the materials protection and performance side of the business, please visit AMP.org or our AMP publications websites, such as codingsformag.com and materialsperformance.com. With those plugs complete, I think we can adjourn. On behalf of our terrific panel, I'm Ben DuBose, news editor for the AMP Publications team. I think you know our panelists, but again, to remind everybody about them, Tony Sardinas, GPI, Nick Kuntz of Alliant, and David Scotty of Scotty Law Group. With that, we will adjourn. Thanks to all of you for stopping by and checking out this episode on your listening platform of choice, where if you haven't already, please give us a subscription and a positive review. And of course, please come back soon 
for another new AMP podcast.